0: Welcome to The Tattooed Mind, a podcast where we explore the intersection of mental health, self-care, and the art of tattooing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing stories, insights, and inspiration from artists who have struggled and overcome obstacles in their lives and careers. My name is Mike Fisher DuBois, and I'm joined by Scott Pizer. Scott is a tattooer out of the suburbs of Chicago, was able to reclaim his life from his drug and alcohol addictions. Scott has a lot to offer the recovery community and personally taught me a lot through our conversation.
1: I'm honored to get to share it with you today and that he took the time to speak with all of us. My name is Scott Pizer from lansing illinois just outside of chicago i tattoo out of state line tattoo company in linwood i try to keyword try i try to specialize in color realism black and gray realism but with a mashup with traditional style to it I've been, been tattooing for roughly about 12 years um, so it's funny i've shared plenty of times of meetings and i've done h and i and all that good stuff so it's weird starting stuff like this without saying hi my name's Scott and I'm an addict I try to think about where where it started and for me you know my addiction and I I think after when I when I think about it after my four step the the first four step that I ever wrote on I realized that a lot of it stemmed it stemmed from high school and I mean obviously I think just like any other addict or alcoholic they could Uh, identify some of the patterns early on in childhood and realize long before the substance came to be a problem that the disease of addiction was there. And I can look back and definitely see that it was there ever since I was a kid. I mean, I remember even in school, the way that I would, I, I would be so obsessive in the way that I would have to write my name or write things on paper was just like one of the first things, examples that I found to where I, I had this obsessive thought pattern. Um but yeah, I, I brought up a high school and I and I see about like high school, I was that nerdy art kid. I was that kid that uh hung out in the art room during lunch and uh hid from everybody and just focused all my time in art class because I got picked on, beat up, bullied, made fun of, all that kind of stuff. And that really messed with uh, with my self esteem to where then when I got older and I got out of high school and I started uh, I started dating this girl who was the complete opposite. She was a cheerleader and she was popular and she had all these friends and she had her little crowd and her little clique. They all partied and smoked weed and drank. That then that's when I I still felt uncomfortable myself. I didn't have that confidence and that self. esteem Team. And so, when the weed came into play, then it started to lose me. And he, I realized that that was kind of like the ticket. That weed quickly progressed into other stuff. You know, that weed progressed into pills. That pills then progressed into heroin, and that heroin progressed into crack. And it spiraled out of control really fast. Then a matter of a year or two, uh I was young. I mean, shoot, I was twenty-two, twenty-three, I think. Uh, so within a matter of a year or two, um, that relationship ended, I overdosed, I ended up in a, you know, in an ambulance. That was the first time my parents, my family became aware that I, I had a problem. I went to rehab and it was a terrifying experience. <laughs> um, I was young and at that time, it, it's not like what it was today to where, Um, you see a lot of younger kids involved into drugs and in rehabs at this time I was in rehab with 50, 40 year old guys, you know, and a lot of more alcoholics than addicts. And so it was weird. And, uh, I just knew it was like, I don't ever want to go back there. And so I got out and I white knuckled it and I still didn't accept that I couldn't drink. So I still wanted to drink and have that social acceptability with my friends and, and go to the bars and do that kind of stuff but i was lost I, I had no direction i had a good job right out of high school working for my neighbor uh, i had a great opportunity and i kind of blew that with drugs and then i got into the union my old man being a, a pipe fitter he got me into the trades and i i blew that too and um i still didn't even see like how much of a problem drugs were in my life at that point and and so I just remember being lost and not knowing what I was doing with my life. And, and I remember my mom coming to me and telling me, um, she, she, you know, cause being a non-believer, uh, in religion and God at that time, uh, she said, you know, I don't give a shit if you don't, you don't believe in anything, but, but God gave you a gift and that gift is your natural talent for being an artist and you need to follow that because not everybody is given a gift and you have a gift you need to use it and I just remember that being probably the most profound thing that my mother has ever said to me and has always stuck with me so at that point I knew that I had to follow that path somehow and I didn't know how the only thing I knew is that I, I had gotten tattooed one other time by this dude, Jimmy, who at the time was, he was working in a shop. And so I remember going to him and being like, Hey, like, I want to learn how to tattoo. And, uh, my sister got me this tattoo kit for Christmas and I don't know what to do with it. And I want to do this the right way. And so he just said, Hey, I can't, you know, promise you that, uh, I could get you an apprenticeship, but you're more than welcome to come hang out at the shop, watch me tattoo. And, and so that's what I did. I lived on the South side and, the shop this shop was out in Indiana and so I used to figure rides out to get to the shop but would hang out at that shop all day and I, I would hang out there all day and, and watch and tattoo and then basically did an unofficial apprenticeship without the ever opportunity of having an apprenticeship there because the owner didn't have much interest um although there artists like me around because I cleaned their tubes you know which was huge for them you know they're like oh sweet this dude clean my tubes and I just have to maybe buy him lunch or say thank you. And that's it. Uh, but I was just hungry. You know, I wanted to learn how to tattoo. So I was willing to do whatever I had to, if I had to scrub toilets, I would have done it. And, um, and so I started hanging out there and then uh, luckily I had a lot of really dumb friends that let me do a lot of really shitty tattoos on them. And so I, I would learn what I could from watching them and go home and tattoo them, these people and fuck them up and, in the beginning as hungry as I was for wanting to learn I was also discouraged because I didn't have a formal apprenticeship and um and I knew that I needed to get my foot in the door and so I remember going around and going to some shops and I I remember having somebody an old school artist uh threw my portfolio back at me and said it was trash uh, it just kept going until I, I finally got an apprenticeship and I got an apprenticeship at dark water with Jose and uh, he gave me an opportunity. And, um, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with, uh, with Jose Perez and, um, you know, so I, I had an opportunity with him and, uh, another guy, Dennis Klein, and some really good artists. And, you know, I, I took it for granted and didn't realize what I had. And sure enough, the partying came back and the drugs came back and, So blew that opportunity, you know, and um, it went back to tattooing out of the house. But really, that was just the ways and a means to to get money to be able to get high, you know, and that's what I I did for a long time. So it's weird in the beginning. You asked me how long I was tattooing for. And I said roughly 12 years. But it's like I look at it as that this past December, I had eight years clean. So I look at it as that I have seven, roughly seven years of tattooing under my belt. Because it was a year into getting clean this time is when I started to tattoo it again and actually taking it serious and actually started focusing on, on fundamentals and just going back to the basics of what I, I, I didn't pay attention to, you know, because I blew those opportunities with that apprenticeship. And I worked in another shop with another really good artist and blew that opportunity and all because of drugs. And it, it just, it was hard for me to ever see my problem. It was hard to, I, I just lived in denial. And I think the biggest part of the denial that I had was alcohol and alcohol was, it was hard for me to see the unmanageability in alcohol. It was hard for me to see what it did and how it affected me because I didn't think that it did, you know, and even though it didn't affect me in the ways that drugs did, it affected me to the sense that it always brought me back to drugs and so i realized that i had to put that down too if i was going to stay clean you know and and once i did that that's when everything changed you know that's when i became open that's when i i, I truly became open minded to the possibility that things can be different you know and another thing too is that i went to meetings i had always gone to meetings i had always been in and out of the rooms but i never I never actually worked the steps I never got a sponsor I just went there I went to a meeting thinking okay I sat in meetings for an hour hour and a half and I'm good to go now but never did shit to change anything and so um, you know this time I I got clean and I, I remember I like any other addict you know I I, I manipulated my way out of a situation. I manipulated my way out of rehab because I didn't want to be in rehab because I knew that rehab wasn't the answer to getting me to stay clean. It was NA, you know, it was going to meetings, getting a sponsor, working steps. I knew that if these dudes that were crackheads on the streets with their parents being the one who are the dealers and they, all they did was they went to NA and they got clean. I knew that there was something there and I could do it too. And So that's what I did. I went to the meetings. This time I got a sponsor. I I did everything that I was told to do. And so that first year of recovery, like I I really wasn't tattooing and I was just focusing on recovery. I was focusing on just learning how to stay clean. And then after about a year, then I slowly started getting back into, uh, guys started getting back into tattooing and started off working in a, uh, a small little street shop in the hood. And and kind of built my way back up you know i kind of built my way back up to then got out of there went to another shop and and stayed there for some years and you know i remember the owner of that shop this dude chuck and i remember him giving me that opportunity and and saying the best thing that i could do for my career to stay put like stay in a shop like stop moving stop moving because that's what i did i had bounced all these other shops He's like, you're never going to establish a clientele if you're constantly moving. They're never going to know where you're at. And so that's what I did. I stayed put there for about three and a half years. And I built up a clientele, a little bit of a following. And I started to get those fundamentals down. And the difference that the big difference, if you jumped my career at that point, was the fact that I was staying clean, was the fact that I was working on myself. I started to see how my recovery in NA applied to those same principles applied to to tattooing. And it was whatever I put in is what I'm going to get out. And, you know, so I just, yeah, I stayed open-minded. I stayed teachable in like a lot of the things that I thought that I had forgotten, or didn't remember from all the other guys that I worked with that were really good artists started to come back to me that I remembered, Oh yeah, Jose did this for that reason. And, and there is a bit of regret and, and maybe shame, I guess I'm looking for is that I did blow those opportunities, you know, because I could, I had so much potential to learn so much from them and I just got a little tidbit from it, you know, but I tried to use whatever I could from those guys and try to apply that until. Eventually, I had an opportunity. Um, I'm not going to say the name. If you know anything about where I've worked in the recent years, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. But I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus directly. But I had an opportunity with a really, really talented black and gray artist um, that was a longtime friend of mine that I knew from the minute that I got into tattooing, um, from going to that shop and hanging out. He worked there. I learned a lot from him and him being a realism artist. I looked up to him and then we became good friends. We had never worked together, but we became good friends. We hung out all the time and uh, I would always, I would go out even sober. I would go out and I'd meet him at the bar because he always hung out at this little dive bar and I'd meet him at the bar and I'd drink water and I'd drink Red Bull or whatever. But I would go and I'd put myself in that situation knowing that not the best place for a recovering addict but I went because of this dude's knowledge and the amount of skill that he had. I wanted that, you know, so I'd pick his brain and I'd ask him questions and he would critique my stuff. Then eventually he had opened his own shop and he gave me an opportunity to come there. And, uh, I was there for a little over a year. And I mean, I think that's where the most progress in my work had came from was through that shop and through him and another artist that I had worked with there that he, everybody there was, it was super talented. And so I worked there, I learned a lot. And then again, I lost that opportunity. You know, I was told that I wasn't good enough to be there, that my work wasn't good enough. It wasn't sufficient enough to be there. And that was a huge blow. That was a huge blow until this day. That is a resentment that is hard for me to truly let go of. You know, I wish that I could, but it, it's, it's like, it, it's not just a it's, it's what is it? It justified resentment that I have, you know, and because I can, I can look at my part because that's what NA and the 12 steps has taught me, has taught me to be self-aware and to be accountable. And I can look at my part in that situation and it's hard for me to see what I've done wrong other than that I tried and I just wasn't good enough. But instead of allowing that to discourage me and, and, and keep me down, I use that as the motivation to continue to push. You know, and so I left there, went to a, the shop that I'm at now, and and I've just pushed myself, you know, just tried to to follow guys like you and and, and all these other guys that I look up to, you know, yeah, like everybody else, Mashcow, and you know, uh <clears throat> and Nico, and you know, I can't even think who else, uh, Yogi, like all those dudes, like all you know, like a lot of the color realism artists, even black and gray, because because I still have to do black and gray from time to time. And so I try to look at like, you know, the contrast in those pieces. And then I try to use that same technique to to like color and apply it. But it's all at this point, it, it's being self-taught and it's just pushing myself to get to that level. But ultimately I think that I wouldn't be where I'm at in my career, in my life, uh, my personal life. I wouldn't be anywhere if it wasn't for NA and if it wasn't for the 12 steps and it's funny, I went to uh, a barbecue yesterday who I was at um, my old sponsor's house, him and his wife, they just bought a new house. So we went there and it got brought up when I was there. If I'm going to come back to meetings because my meeting attendance and involvement into NA has been trash. And, As much as I can sit here and make a million and one excuses, there is no excuse, but there's no excuse to why I'm not there, but I'm not there because my time and effort is put into this, you know, it's put in a tattoo and it's put into being a father, it's put into being a a fiance and, and all those other things that, that that's ultimately what NA has been able to give, but I wouldn't have any of that if it wasn't for it. And. So they were kind of busting my balls yesterday when I'm going to come back to a meeting. And it's so easy for my mind to think that, what do I have to offer at a meeting? Okay, yeah, I got eight and a half years clean, but I haven't worked a a strong program. I don't have a sponsor. I haven't been to meetings, but there is still something there for me to offer. Your
0: story is so awesome to hear. Uh, I I hate to say say it, but... uh... I just love talking to addicts and uh, people with bad habits like that because I feel like very few people have such an appreciation for their life as somebody who almost lost it. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's always cool to just hear uh, just how much you really love where you're at, you know, even if things aren't perfect. The fact that you just know that you worked really hard to get things back because they, you know, it was almost all
1: gone. I think it's a level of a, you know, you have a different level of appreciation and I think ultimately gratitude, you know, it's, it boils down to gratitude because of losing everything and being in such a shitty place and, and thinking that that's it, it's never going to get better. And then to put in that work and then see where life could bring you when you start doing things, you truly have gratitude for it and you don't take things for granted anymore. You know, and it's, I I think as addicts and alcoholics, I think we do see life through a different perspective, like a different lens. It's the level of humbleness that, a level of humility that most people will never have. You know, they'll never have that opportunity to be able to see through that lens. And I wish more people could because I think the, the world might be a lot a different place uh that's yeah. for sure
0: yep hey, yeah absolutely um I've, i heard it said before that um it, alcoholics alcoholics i'm an alcoholic so that everything in my head is sort of through that lens uh but that alcoholics are the luckiest people in the world because they're the only ones who get to live two lives everyone else just gets one
1: yeah um,
0: absolutely you know so it's the same thing for people struggling with any addiction or any sort of recovery, you know, their recovery from all sorts of stuff. People in bad domestic abuse situations have a recovery if they get out of that, too. You know, there's all sorts of things. But um, yeah, it's just it's cool to see this second life. And I feel like tattooing creates these weird pictures for us, like literal pictures for us to be able to see what our first life looked like and our second life looked like, and we can judge them against each other really hard in the form of our portfolio. Um, Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. You know, have you ever looked back at your portfolio from when you were using?
1: Oh God. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how, but I still have some of those clients that have stuck with me. (laughs) (laughs) I, I still have some clients that have stuck with me. And, uh, yeah, so I and I, I cringe every time I see those tattoos, and I'm like, listen, I'm just gonna cover this shit for free. Yeah, like, get I'm the not fuck even- out of the <laughs> shop or let me cover it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just yeah, I can't see this anymore. You can't be walking around with this crap anymore. Yeah, no, I mean a hundred percent. I mean, I still, you know, it, it's definitely it's the it's definitely crazy to see that progress in your work. And I think that's just it. That's ultimately what recovery has taught me is to remain teachable. And it's progress rather than perfection. And and to be able to see that even from uh, six months ago to what I've done recently to, you know, or a year ago, yeah, or even back then, 100%, It's definitely crazy to see that. Yeah. It's funny because I don't, uh, all the guys in the shop where I work now, the one guy I work with is a fine line artist. The other guy's like a traditional kind of jack of all trades type artist, neo traditional. The other guy's like more of a strong neo traditional artist. And uh so they're all line work, line work, line work. And I like infusing like traditional new schooly style stuff in with my pieces, but anytime I can avoid line work, I do. You know what I mean? And I pass up a lot of stuff and I push it off to those guys because not because I can't do it or I don't want to do it but because I know they'll do it better you know and so so they're they're always busting my balls that I don't I don't ever outline anything and it's because <laughs> it's because it was never my strong point you know and so it, it's funny to where I look back at that work and all my stuff was big bold lines and and you know just the different variations of line weight. everything had to be lined to where now it's like I very rarely bust out you know line work you know you'd see and if i do it's smaller portions of the tattoo so it's definitely crazy to see how much my work has definitely evolved but i remember someone uh someone asking me uh from the program and they saw that my work was progressing and they're like what did you do and it was funny like i thought about it and i have it tattooed on my face but it's the in any and it's true to, like, I don't know how much in AA you guys talk about it, but the, the three indispensable uh, principles of the program are honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. And it's those three principles that I believe are the key to life, but uh, ultimately have been the key to tattooing for me, you know, being able to be honest with myself where my work stands. And sometimes I feel as if I don't, and I hear it from my fiance, I hear it from other people that I... I don't give my, myself enough, uh, enough credit. You know, I'm my own worst critique just as much as anybody else's to where I'm like, nah, my shit's busted, it sucks. It's horrible, but it's nowhere near as good as that. But <clears throat> it's the matter of being able to be honest with myself in in my work and um, what flaws it had, what I could have done better. And and being open-minded to how I could possibly change that and be better in, in what could make that piece better and then be willing to actually try those suggestions. You know, it's those three things that a lot of artists I, I see are, they're so set in their ways and stubborn to do any of them. And that to me, I think is ultimately what has continued to allow me to progress in what I'm doing.
0: Totally. Yeah. I, I get that wholeheartedly. Uh, I was asked a few days ago, maybe a you know, couple of weeks now, I guess, um, by a friend of mine, like how I got so good recently. He's like, what did you do? what did you figure out? It was like, oh, you mean like two and a half years ago, my work all of a sudden started getting a lot better? It was like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly when it happened. It was like, yeah, in February of 2021, my work got a whole bunch better. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, I quit drinking, dude. Right. No, 100 like, percent Yeah. and and so the guy I was talking to is uh like he's straight edge. So he he doesn't, I guess, have quite as much of a concept of how much that affects your work ethic, not just your work quality, but the way you kind of go into the work you do. Um, So that's another one of those benefits, I think, of us being in recovery is we can look at our stuff, like at our process a little bit more objectively and with a bit more of like a clear mind because we're able to look at the stuff that we've learned through meetings and be like, is this following this?
1: Yeah. I think a lot of that has to do is because we've learned self-awareness and we've learned how to, how to keep our ego at check, you know, and ego is such a huge factor into the tattoo industry as artists that the, I mean, you know, it just as much as I know it, that there are very narcissistic egotistical fucking people in this industry. And that ego is always going to cloud any type of progression in in work, because if you already think you're the shit and you're everything and you know everything, how can you ever learn anything? You know, and I I think that's what is pretty cool about us, that we've had that opportunity to realize that we ain't shit. (laughs) You know what I mean? That we ain't shit, you know, and we've learned humility from that. And that allows us to grow. That allows us to to stay humble, to keep that ego at check and to, to continue to be teachable. Do you ever
0: worry that your clients are going to just gas you up enough that that ego will start to kind of creep up and strengthen up, you know, as you're getting better at tattooing, as you're building up clientele? Do you think it's going to overpower the lessons that you've learned through recovery?
1: I don't think so, because if anything, I have a hard enough time believing that I am good (laughs) I have a hard enough time believing that I am good like I'll play you know it is stupid as social media is to me uh in the game that we have to play with it to be able to market ourselves and put ourselves out there it's like I'll post a picture that I think is the best tattoo that I've ever done and it'll get like four likes you know or I'm sitting here looking and it's like I, I see other artists that early in their career and I don't know if they bought followers but they got like quadruple the amount of me like you know what I mean so I never feel as if I'm good enough anyways and so and that is that's actually a struggle for me it's a struggle of self-esteem like I said that goes back to high school days of being picked on and bullied and you know not feeling as if I'm good enough and then from the previous shop that I was at to have the person that I looked up to able to literally say that I wasn't good enough to work there. Like those were the words, you know, that were used, you know? And so to have all that, like, it, it's hard for me to truly believe in that I am good enough. And so I'll have clients and I'll have my fiance and I'll have family and friends and all them, you know, tell me like how amazing like my works got and like, like this, that, the other, but it is truly, truly hard for me to believe that. I try to remain confident. Like I have a level of confidence in that I know what I'm doing, and I always try to instill that into clients. Say, "Hey, just trust me, and I got you." And, and this is going to come out dope, you know. Don't micromanage this. Just trust my process. Trust my thoughts. You know what I think is going to look cool. And for the most part, I get lucky with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think. I think when I hear that stuff, like, I almost don't even know how to react to it. Like, I almost forget that I should say thank you. And that's not out of, like, being arrogant or, like, that, uh, yeah, no shit, I know that. Like, it's almost as if I don't know how to accept that compliment, you know? Totally, no.
0: I 100% know how you feel. I do the fake, uh, yeah, cool, yeah, you love it, right? This is great. Like, oh, that looks awesome. Like, I just tell them it looks awesome, you know, before I can even start to think about how much I hate the thing that I just put on them forever.
1: Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right.
0: No, so I'm glad you brought up um, the last shop again, because I wanted to ask you, when you have such a big defeat like that, um, being in in recovery, were you worried that that was going to be something that made you slip back?
1: No, I wasn't worried that it was something that was going to make me slip back. Um, it was definitely a, it was more a blow to my ego, I think, than anything. It was a blow to my ego, and it was a loss of a friend,
0: you know? Maybe I phrased that kind of wrong. Um because I, I I'm not I don't think you were worried you got you had seven years on you you probably were pretty confident. How would somebody who's newer to recovery, like let's say you got a guy who's got six months recovery in their belt sure. under their belt, they feel like they're just kicking ass, and then all of a sudden they get a major blow like that. I mean, a big life change that's not just bad for them, you know in a business standpoint, but it's also a personal blow.
1: We got a stupid saying in NA and I actually, I have it, I have it tattooed like right on my hand um, that I believe it's after working the second step that you joined the no matter what club uh, and that no matter what happens, you don't use, you know, and that was something that stuck with me. So I early on in recovery tour, I knew that no matter what, No matter what the fuck life throws at me, I don't use, it'll work out. No matter how tough it is, no matter how shitty it is, no matter what, like, just don't use, don't pick up. Because if I don't pick up, I don't have to worry about figuring out how to put down. Because once I pick something, once I pick it up, I don't know how to put it down. But what I do know is how to not pick it up, you know, and so it was just a matter of that. It was a matter of no matter what I think that, you know, anybody struggling in, in, or fresh to recovery, like it's just don't use no matter what, you know, it's, there's nothing. And I think the longer you stay clean, the more that just becomes aware, you become aware to that, that all those things are, are really, I don't want to say trivial, but for the most part, a lot of them are. And even when the big stuff happens, you know, like even I've dealt with a lot of shit. You know, I had my ex who, you know, my daughter isn't biologically mine, but I was there from day one, you know, and I didn't know if she was going to be mine or I chose that regardless if she was going to be mine or not when she was born, that she deserved to have a father because the other person wasn't around. So I stuck around and I raised her as my own and she ended up biologically not being mine, but I stuck around. I raised her. My ex was also an addict and we were together for like six years or so, and we uh, lived together, obviously, raised uh, our daughter together, and she just never changed. She was still going to a methadone clinic. She still just wasn't doing anything, and I questioned how much, how often she was abusing her Xanax, and it just got to the point where I, I was miserable. I couldn't do it anymore, and I built up the courage to, to end that relationship, and the worst possible thing could have happened next to her killing herself was she took off with my daughter overnight, not let me know and took off to Georgia and had the intention of never letting me see her again. And I didn't know what to do, you know? And so I did the only thing that I could do, which was try to find her. And, uh, so long story short, uh, a mutual acquaintance came through the woodwork and, uh, reached out and they were able to get in contact with her, find out where, where she was. And, I literally paid for them to get down to Georgia, just get my daughter back, get her, get her to safety because I knew that my ex was using. And even during all of that time happening, as hard as that was, I knew that picking up wasn't going to be an option because what good would that be? You know? And so, so I was able to get my daughter back up here and got got stuck in this kind of weird co-parenting situation with a, a stranger because of legality that she had she technically has more legality to my daughter than I do. And so I, I, since it was what, three years ago now, um, have been co-parenting essentially with who was a stranger, you know, to be able to ensure that this little girl has a life that, that I'm still present that even though I'm biologically not her father and her mom's not around that there's some st- type of stability that she, she's safe, she's taken care of and she has what she needs, you know, and, and all of that, Again, all of this stuff, every like thing in my life always boils back down to the principles of recovery. You know, it all boils back down to to being selfless, selfless service and to be able to that it's not about me anymore, that it's about this innocent child who deserves to have a life, you know, and that no matter how I feel towards the co-parent, that it doesn't matter because I have to put that shit to the side. And I have to do what's best for her, you know, and, and pushing myself in, in tattooing and getting better to build a pro, you know, better clientele and to be able to, to make more money and to be able to build a life is all, you know, things of recovery that are for her, you know? And, and so I think that no matter what life throws at you, it just has to be a commitment that you have to just surrender to and accept that no matter what you're not going to use, you know, it, it's, it's super simple, you know? It's super simple, you know, but it, it's not just because it's simple doesn't mean that it's easy, yeah. you know.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, you talk a lot about recovery. Um, that's a phrase I use to all the time. But and you, you're saying that recovery is you're just not using But I I don't think that's what you mean when you say that, right? Because there's a lot more that goes into recovery
1: than not using. That's just like that last line
0: of defense when you're having a bad day, right?
1: Drugs and alcohol are just the symptom of the problem, you know, and the real problem that I have is the way that I think. I got a fucked up thinking problem, you know, because when you get into the core of the disease, the core of the disease Mm -hmm. is an obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, and so, um, it's easy. You know, where I look back to when I got clean and I white knuckled it and I didn't have any type of recovery in my life. And it was just simply, I'm not going to fucking use. And I was miserable. I was miserable. I still had the same fucked up thought patterns, the obsessive thought patterns. I still, uh, was just resentful towards the world and everybody. I still was a major asshole I might still be an asshole for the most part today. (laughs) trying to work on it. At least I'm self-aware to it today. Um, But yeah, I, um, you know, when I didn't have recovery and I wasn't using, I eventually used because I didn't have recovery because I I didn't have any type of tools or whatsoever to combat against the the addiction that was going into, was going on in my mind and the thoughts that the crazy the thoughts that I had. And eventually, I just always went back to use it. And it wasn't until that I I got clean this last time and I got a sponsor and I worked steps. Because like I said before, I'd go to meetings, I'd sit in a meeting, I'd listen. To me and did some stuff make me feel better or relatable? Sure. But ultimately, I really didn't even understand most of what the fuck they were talking about. Um, and so when I got clean this time, I I just... I got that sponsor and I started working the steps and that's when I started to learn what recovery was. That's when I started to learn what the disease of addiction was and how it manifested in my life. And then I learned how it affected all areas of my life. It it affected my personal life. It affected uh, my relationship with my parents, my friends, whoever, you know, and I started to realize that how that first step gets applied to everything, how that second step gets applied to everything, how that third step, and so on and so forth. And that's when things started to change. And as much as I'm not active in NA anymore, and as much as I, I don't work steps on a regular basis, those principles are still applied in my my day-to-day life to this day. You know what I mean? They being able to be, to have acceptance, to be able to have honesty, to be able to have patience, to be able to have surrender, you know, to be able to take a deep breath and know that I don't have control over this shit because I always want to fix, manage, and control shit. You don't have to realize that it's out of my hands, you know? Totally. Yeah.
0: I, I'm i in a lot of that same boat. So I haven't been to an AA meeting in over a year now, um, and it's just you know life got in the way my wife got pregnant i switched jobs it just became you know like that was the easiest thing to stop doing and then you get out of the habit absolutely i feel like one of the things that being in a really structured program did was rewire my brain and how i try and handle problems um which, which is honestly a lot of not trying to fix problems. That's what I did before is I tried to fix everything. Now I try to deal with problems, which is a completely different thing than trying to fix it.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um,
0: and so there's like a little bit of like uh, like brainwashing, you know, AA, NA, uh, any 12-step programs, kind of a call you know. Oh, yeah. But it, But it's such a good thing. Um, for the right people, like if you find the right group and you're the sort of person who needs that structure and you know, I was, I was a lost person. I was somebody who would do anything not to have to deal with myself, um, and tried to fix the entire world so that nothing was my fault. It, it worked out great. Cause all that stuff is still kind of just stuck in my head and it's, you know, reflexive now almost.
1: Right. No, absolutely. It's rewiring our thought pattern, you know, and how to cope with things, because I think that's ultimately it is that we never learned proper coping mechanisms of how to deal with life on life terms. And so I think that's what the 12 steps has ultimately taught me. It's taught taught me how to cope with life. It's taught taught me how to deal with those problems. I remember a guy from the program always telling me just do the George Costanza early on in, in like maybe 30 days in and I was like, what the hell are you talking about? It's was like, just do the opposite of whatever you would do. <laughs> you know, and I, and I still apply that till this day. to a, a client mouthing off or saying something and thinking about what my reaction would be and do the opposite of that. You know, because I have to stop myself from that. Because at the end of the day, even after eight and a half years clean, I'm still that person. The, there is still that person inside of me. It's a matter of learning to use those principles to combat against that.
0: I'm a firm believer that just about every addict is one morning of forgetting to pray or one day of just losing track of themselves before they're right back into whatever it was they were doing. I talked about it when I did my episode here. I don't even smoke weed because like, that's just one of my triggers. Weed was never a problem for me, but if I do weed. I'm going to decide I want beer. If I drink a beer, I'm going to have to drink some whiskey. If I drink whiskey, I'm going to end up spending all of my money on Coke, Um, you know, and there's just like a, an order and it it could start at any one of those spots, but that means weed will make me get to Coke. It it might take a week, but I will definitely get
1: there. Right. And it's the same thing for me with drinking. You know what I mean? It's like, I, like, I know that if I drink, what it's going to lead to. The guys that I work with, they smoke, you know, and yeah, they know that I'm clean. And so I'll go out there, have a cigarette and talk to them while they're hitting their pens and shit. And, and I just always make the joke that if I, if I were to hit that pen, I'd be in that bathroom banging dope an hour later. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, it will never be the high that I want, you know, and so it just always brings me back to it to where I don't want to be you know? and So I, I can't pick anything up and I do always kind of like, I get as much as everybody, you know, has their own process and things, you know, I, I've come across clients that have family members that struggle or where I've come across clients that are struggling. And I will always, even though I'm not as active as I used to be, I, I tell people the first thing I ever tell them, go to a meeting, get a sponsor. I don't believe that, that, you're gonna you can't sit there and tell me that you want to stop doing this but then you still want to smoke weed or you want to stop doing this but you still want to drink and and it's not for me to tell them that you know i I could try to say like hey that didn't work for me but i don't know who knows maybe maybe it will work for them i don't know but my best guess is it's not going to (laughs) work and so it's just one of those things that ultimately like i know that I have to abstain from all of it, any type of mood and mind altering substance. It's funny. I'll get clients when they find out that I'm a recovering addict and, you know, they're like, well, what do you do for fun? (laughs) You know, as if you can't have fun without drinking or you can't have fun without smoking weed. And that's where, like I tell them, like my time is spent with art, with drawing when I'm not here and if it's not doing that then it's spent with my daughter and if it's not doing that then it's spent with my fiance and just become a fat ass and eat really expensive (laughs) food because I could justify spending $300 on a steak instead of $300 at a bar.
0: Yep, That was uh, one of the big things I did my first like six months sober. Um, My cousin uh, one of my closest friends he and I every Saturday night would go out and we'd get like a $200 dinner because like we weren't going to the bars. He still drank, but he would just be like, oh, no, you're, you're getting sober. You need somebody that you know who's your friend to go hang out with. So we're going to go and hit up this nice restaurant downtown and get $200 worth of oysters or whatever. Um, yeah, it's amazing how much further that money goes, too, when you don't have alcohol involved in the oh, yeah. dinner. <laughs>
1: yeah, 100%.
0: If you didn't get clean, where would you, where do you think you would have ended up,
1: dude? Dead. There's no doubt in my mind, that, You know, and I know that if I were to go back, that's what it's going to be, you know, because I've been to jail. I, I've been in the, in two, in, I've been in rehabs. I, I, there's nothing left for me. There's nothing left for me but death. I, I think at this point, I think relapsing would make me so spiritually bankrupt that, I wouldn't have the will to live anymore. And I, I think you know, that would be it. I, I would die. And I'm terrified of the thought of even using, you know, it, I, I'm crazy. So I could take three ibuprofen because I have a headache and will give myself a panic attack. And I'll freak out and legit give myself a panic attack after taking ibuprofen and forget that I have smoked crack and shot dope at the same exact time (laughs) like it's baffling to me that that's where i was and now here i am having panic attacks with taking ibuprofen so i mean i know without a doubt in my mind and i think i knew that early on i i experienced a very surreal moment early on in my recovery to where i didn't even have but 30 days clean and the ex-girlfriend who i got into all the drugs with um who I first started doing pills, smoking weed and doing pills and doing heroin with, um, she died. She died at a young age in some crazy rollerblading accident down in Hawaii where she was living. And uh, we hadn't talked for years. When we broke up, our family was like, no, nah, you guys are toxic for each other. You can't see each other. You can't talk. And we did not talk for a long time, years. And then finally she came back in town and she reached out to me and I was going to tattoo her. And then she died. And so I remember I went to her wake and I had put on this blazer, like a sports coat, you know, to, to go to this wake And I got to the wake and it was a closed casket because she was badly injured. And so I remember going into the bathroom and I reached into my pocket, the, the inside pocket of that, that, that jacket because I felt something. And I used to hide all of my stuff because I lived at home with my parents and I I used to hide my my needles and my bags and all that shit. And I reached in there and there was a bag of dope. And I remember 30-something days clean, barely 30 days clean, and here I am at the person's wake who I got into all this shit with. And I legit, I looked at that bag and I saw myself in that casket. And it was the the most surreal thing he had. I, there's no words that I can even say that could possibly explain what I felt or saw at that moment, but it was till this day, probably the most profound thing that happened in my recovery to where I knew right there and then that using was never a fucking option that I will die if I continue to use. And that scared me so much that I don't ever want to fucking use again. God was there with you there. That wasn't an accident. (laughs) There there are no such things as coincidences, you know, everything happens that I'm for certain of, you know. So I I definitely do believe that there there was a a higher power in that moment that uh, was directing me in a path that I needed to be on.
0: I want to say a lot of people are not given those signs, but I feel like that's not true. Most of most people get those signs, and they're usually clear as fucking day when we're given them. Most of us just intentionally ignore those signs. Um, so that's awesome that you were able to see it for what it was, and you're like, "Fuck, I can't do this."
1: Yeah, no, a hundred percent. You know, I I think there's signs on a regular basis. I think that's part of being restored to sanity, and that's part of. Um, That second step, the more in touch that I am with my higher power, the more in touch I will be with reality. And so the more in touch that I am with reality, there's more balance in that sanity of realizing what is my crazy thought pattern and what is reality. It's all intertwined to where where I definitely think that there are signs around us all the time. I look for those things and I'm not the most intuitive person and I don't I've learned even after eight, eight and a half years, playing, I've learned to start to trust that gut instinct a little bit more because that is my higher power. That is telling me like, Hey, no, trust that feeling. If I'm feeling negative about something, there's a reason, you know, Hey, Josh Herman tattooed a, uh, a hawk on the side of my head some years back while he was still in Chicago. And, um, and I got that because that was, you know, I, I, I joke, but I, I got it because it was like my spirit animal, right? And when I, the first day I got back from rehab uh, after getting clean, I I lived in, you know, a south suburb right outside of Chicago. So it wasn't like it was common to see wildlife, like hawks and stuff in my neighborhood. And so I threw the garbage out and I was walking back in and there was a hawk perched on, on our fence. And I was, but maybe 15, 20 feet from it. And I stopped out of my tracks and this thing just stared at, and didn't fucking move and i moved a little bit closer and i got within three feet of this thing and it just like slowly took off like all fucking majestic and shit and like it was just it was wild and so then i i started when i got into my third step uh my sponsor at the time had a lot of native american beliefs and so he started to explain to me like spirit animals and he started to explain to me the meaning behind hawks and when I found out that meaning that, you know, they, they soar above the skies and that they're protectors and they're there to guide you and, uh, all the different meanings behind it. I thought it was interesting. So enough that I wanted to get this shit tattooed on me. Right. And so till this day, when I'm ever faced with a decision that I can't come to figure out what the best thing to do is, there's always a hawk nearby. Always. And it's, it's not like, like I said, going back to coincidence, right? I don't believe in coincidence. And I also, the weird thing, the connection with it is that when I see these hawks or or in these moments, it's not a matter of, oh, I saw it at this intersection or I saw it over here. It's a matter of, I saw it directly after I had a thought in my head about the decision that I have to make. And so that connection of the timing, like there was no coincidence there. There There's no coincidence. And so I do see that, that higher power working in my life and, and, you know, in those examples. And I think those things are everywhere for everybody on a regular basis. And it's a matter of how conscious people are to it. That's awesome. Um,
0: I'm I'm probably going to cut this out that I'm about to say. Uh, What would you say if I told you I have a three foot or two and a half foot hawk tattooed on me.
1: That's not talking about. That's weird. You know, that's fucking weird. That's goosebump shit. You know, I mean, people would say that silly and goofy, but like that just is another, like another thing that like everything happens for a reason. And we're sitting here, we're talking about this stuff. And I know we got cut out earlier on the connection, but it was like, I started to say like, where was this podcast? Where was this? When I first got clean, or when I first tried to get clean, because at that time, I didn't know of any people in the, in the industry that were clean, that were trying to stay clean, that were working a program or focused on recovery. I just saw people partying, drinking and, and doing shit like that. And so it, it made it hard for me to stay clean in the beginning because I didn't know anybody in the industry that was actually clean.
0: How would people find you if they um, like want to look you up online?
1: Uh, if you look me up on Instagram, at Scotty P. Tattoos. And then uh, Facebook is just uh, my full name, Scott Peiser. So P-I-Z-E-R, but that's how you would find me.